There's something curious about this broadcast. This is Moscow. This is Moscow Corp. On the 12th of April, the Soviet Union orbited a spaceship around the Earth with a man on board. The astronaut is a Soviet citizen, Major Gagarin Yuri Alexeyevich. Ladies and gentlemen, you know it, you love it, you can't live without it. This is TGP Normal. Nominal. Damn Hello, everybody, and welcome to TGP Nominal, your monthly look at all things science fact and science fiction. I must say a big welcome to anyone who is out there listening to the show who's come along from the Yuri's Night website because uh, it's the Yuri's Night podcast. Now, there's a lack of Mr. Burger tonight because uh, he's on call with his job, but the show must go on. I haven't got Mr. Burger with me, but I have got someone very special as a guest co-host tonight. I've got Tim Bailey from Yuri's Night themselves. Hi, Tim. How are you doing? I'm doing good, Mark. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome, sir. Now, what is your official role at Yuri's Night? I am currently the executive director of Yuri's Night. I also serve on the board of directors. So we are a, uh, a non-profit organization in the United States, uh, organized about... 10 years ago now as our own independent nonprofit. And so I'm the executive director in charge of uh, reaching out and doing uh, international cooperation and sort of spreading the good message of Yuri's Night. Uh, we're an all-volunteer team, so I try to take on uh, as many of the executive functions as I can uh, so that the rest of the team can focus on supporting events and our website and making things easy for people to have Yuri's Night events all over the planet. And to be honest with you, my experience of dealing with Yuri's Night over the years, you guys are so approachable, it's unbelievable. <laughs> Thank you. That's great to hear. We always try to field questions as much as we can. Like I said, it's a it's an all-volunteer team, so we, we do this as a passion project. Nobody does this as their full-time job. And to see the amount of time and energy that people are willing to put into supporting the hundreds of events that happen around all the planet every year uh, is just a testament to the passion that we have for space and for making it fun and approachable so i'm glad to hear that you find that from the entire team from the word go because i found out about uh, yuri's night from uh, some from folks that you know uh, of what used to be space vidcast which is now tomorrow and, and my first experience of yuri's night was when they started doing those live marathons that they did if you remember those oh i remember those all right we uh, the the live webcasts That's so we right. actually uh back in i think 2004 or uh, had a webcast that we did as well so yuri's night's been on the, the cutting edge of technology trying to unite the world in a global space event uh, and really make people feel like everybody around the world is part of this party and has a place uh, not just at Yuri's Night, but in the space industry. And uh, Ben and Carrie and Higginbotham, who are the Space Vidcast and now Tomorrow folks, have really been supportive in not just putting us on their shows, but taking on doing an entire global webcast. They were on the air for, I think, 20 hours yeah, straight. Yeah, something like that. I, I seem to recall because yeah. uh, one of the events I went to, I came back and didn't expect to see them still on the air. It was. <laughs> <laughs> we don't do that very often. That's a special thing we do now because uh, we've got so much video footage online that you can go in and, and find a lot of YouTube videos of celebrities and people doing um, greetings and things. But every once in a while, we get enough interest where someone like yourself might decide that it's worthwhile to just play on, you know, just press on and do a full mission. We're going 24 hours around the world uh, and have parties call in and uh, Skype in 
uh, and show some things off that are happening live. But really, the best way to experience Yuri's Night is to have a Yuri's Night. Yeah. I, I know yeah. you were in the process of planning Yuri's Night, correct? That's correct, yeah. But now we've got our feelers out and we've got our foundations there and we're coming back strong for next year and hopefully we're going to have a, a really impressive event next year. Well, there are, are four events currently showing in the UK that I can see on our, our global map. So yeah. if you go to yurisnight.net, you can look around and find, we've got a map with points all over the planet that are, are having an events that we know about that have come to register for free with us uh, and a big long list of where all of those are. So if there's a public event that people want to publicize, we let them do that for free on the website um, as well as, like you know, downloading logos and music uh, and all of those things to support people having events. Yeah, yeah. And we, um, as we know, Yuri's Night is spread right over the globe. I mean, uh, in the past, I'm, I'm not sure if it's the same for the for this year, uh, but all six continents have been covered in the past, obviously in space as well, because they do celebrate it on the uh, ISS. That's right. So this year we do have all seven continents. Antarctica is usually looking for a reason to celebrate. And, and so uh, they do that sometimes with a vodka toast outside and sometimes just with a, uh, a space party inside to, where they can stay warm. But typically we've, we've gotten all seven continents we have had some major events up on the International Space Station, and we even got the Mars Opportunity rover to uh, do a little dance for us once on Mars. <laughs> now, my, one of my friends uh, mentioned to me that uh, with Antarctica actually getting involved, it's going to be one of the celebrations where you're guaranteed to get a cool beer. <laughs> <laughs> Now, in D.C., we are having an event on Tuesday, April 11th. The Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum is hosting an event that is all about space and beer. So they have a company that flew a, some yeast on a sounding rocket all the way to the edge of space and brought it back and used that yeast to brew beer. So they're doing a big space and beer party at the National Air and Space Museum in downtown D.C. That it's is, super exciting. I can't wait to go. so cool. I mean, well, there was also a company, and I didn't hear any more about it, that they uh, actually sent some whiskey up to the ISS to, to see what, what happened once it matured up there, sent it back down and um, see what difference it made to the actual recipe. Really? I did not hear about that. Yeah. Oh, that sounds intriguing. It actually came back on one of the... Uh, dragon capsules i love that we have the ability now uh with spacex to bring things back from space that was missing after the end of the space shuttle program that we could actually bring things back home more than what would fit sort of under the seat in a soyuz capsule so i'm really excited that spacex has given us what's called down mass capability uh, that we can actually bring things back and to hear that it's been used for something as relevant as whiskey oh yeah uh, i think that's I, I just love the fact that um, I think it was Lavazza Coffee had a special coffee machine sent up to the ISS to keep the Italian astronauts happy because they weren't particularly happy with the coffee that was up there. A lot of people try some gimmicky things for space. I don't know if it was connected to the coffee machine, but astronaut Don Pettit actually made a coffee cup yes, while he, did, he was up in he? space. Yeah, that's right. We had one of our top chefs involved when uh, Tim Peake uh, went on board the ISS. They actually did a a whole TV show about what kind of food can we give him that's a, uh, a kind of a gastronomical surprise once he gets up there and basically all he wanted was a bacon sandwich so <laughs> I've heard from, from some of the astronauts and I know some of the food providers have talked about the fact that because there's a fluid shift in space and people a lot of the 
the fluid that's usually down in our legs, uh, our legs tend to have a lot of pressure on them, gets shoved back up into the, the torso and up into the head, and that makes their tongue swell and they can't taste as much. So mm-hmm. I've been told that that's why they like really spicy foods like a um, shrimp cocktail or something with a, a large play, flavor profile that they can really taste because it, it decreases the amount of taste that they have. So I wonder if his bacon sandwich tasted as good <laughs> up there as it normally does when he's down on the ground. The chef I'm talking about is a, is a guy called Heston Blumenthal. He's more of a chemist than he is of a chef because he does some weird and wonderful things with food. He makes food look like other food. He disguises them and all kinds of things. He's even made wallpaper that tastes of fruit. <laughs> I kid you not. Why? Because he wanted to do a, a Willy Wonka style thing. Um... <laughs> It, it, this is the kind of things he does. And, and so actually, what you were saying there about the because of the fluid in, in your body uh, moves around, uh, he actually tried to mimic that by actually trying food on Earth whilst he was upside down to try and replicate the feeling so that he could muck around with his taste buds to to try and do something special and that that's the kind of guy he is oh that's fantastic (laughs) so i uh part of my jobs that i do is i work for the zero gravity corporation which is a commercial company that takes people up in a an aircraft we climb and dive the airplane and Mm -hmm. everything is in free fall so we have a, a weightless experience exactly the same as what the astronauts do on space station only ours is for about 30 seconds at a time yeah and i cannot say that i've had any uh fluid shift happen in that 30 seconds but lifesavers taste really good i can i can tell you <laughs> lifesavers now that's something we we don't particularly have in the uk but i do know about them because i've had them when i've been out in the states and uh, for for our uk friends it's like a fruit flavored polo mint Okay, uh, without the mint. It's just a fruit-flavored candy with a hole in the middle. Uh, so it looks like one of those life-saving devices that they would throw out from the ships. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, if it floats around in your mouth and goes the wrong way, at least there's a hole in it to breathe through. That's it. Because we have a mint over here called Polos, and it's exactly the same as a lightsaver. It's just minty-flavored rather than fruit-flavored. Well, they have, light, they have mint-flavored lifesavers now, too, so right. maybe they, they got the idea from you. <laughs> But yeah, I just thought I'd explain them to, to English <laughs> English folks just in case. Well, that's one of the fun things uh, about working with a global event is that there's so many different things that go on that I get exposed to a lot of different customs or foods or music. I know you were just telling me about uh, public service broadcasting, the, the the group that was that's done space music, and I love hearing people and finding bands that have done. really engaging space music, space music videos, using samples from things. And that's one of the reasons that Yuri's Night exists, is to sort of bridge those cultural divides through art and science uh, and, and where those things meet up. We love to have really good music events, engage artists in, in having major events. We did a lot of that at the Yuri's Night Los Angeles event that I was at this week as well. Yeah, yeah. we'll, we'll go on to that in a second, actually. But you just mentioned uh, public service broadcasting. I'd just like to, to mention the fact that we have been using public service broadcasting's Gagarin track as our theme this evening. We have for the last couple of years. And I'd just like to thank Steve Dix from uh, Liquid Management for the, for the use of the track, because um, Steve is there. Is the band's manager, and he's allowed us to actually use that one track for Yuri's Night. That's fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you from all of Yuri's Night. So, yeah, Yuri's Night, Los Angeles. 
Tell us more. There are obviously events all around the world and everybody can have a Yuri's night. It's a world space party and we encourage everyone to have a party no matter what that looks like. So in Los Angeles, we have a large event that that Yuri's night itself puts on and it's been going on for three or four years now, Mm -hmm. more than that. And we do it at the California Science Center underneath the space shuttle. So they actually have one of the retired space shuttles out there. We have the party underneath there. We had amazing guest speakers. We had art installations. We had folks from JPL, from Virgin Galactic, from SpaceX, all the the big rocket companies that were there. We had Anusha Ansari, who is a private space explorer. She was the first woman private space explorer that's been up to space. We had Rusty Schweikert from Apollo 9, who came out and talked next. We had Peter Diamandis, uh, who started the XPRIZE and International Space University, which is in Toulouse now, and uh, Singularity University and Zero Gravity Corporation. And just an amazing variety of speakers. We had folks from Bella Gaia, which is a science-themed art and music performance that happens all around the world. It was an incredible evening, not because of the people that were up on stage there, but because everybody there was so engaged in thinking about the future of humanity, what it means to be from Earth. The theme for the evening was we are all travelers on Spaceship Earth. And so everybody was encouraged to think of themselves as part of the crew of the spaceship and how we all interact with each other on this planet as crewmates and as people who depend on on one another for our survival as we go out into space. Absolutely gorgeous. So I encourage everybody to to look online, uh, find some great pictures. We had uh, some celebrities drop by. There were about 1,200 people that attended the event. It's definitely one of the larger events on the planet. But like I said, we have more events coming up this week. Uh, We've got two more that are happening here in D.C. I know a bar in Orlando that's a gaming pub, uh, and they're having a big Yuri's night. But all over the planet, and and even if folks are listening now and saying, ah, I've missed my chance, no, you haven't. Yuri's night is the 12th, so that's the actual date, but you can celebrate anywhere around it. We even had a big event on April 2nd out in Colorado Springs. The Space Foundation had a big fundraiser event that they did with some astronauts and cosmonauts. So whatever way you feel like is the right way for your audience to, uh, in your community, to celebrate space, do that. I've even done straw rockets at a daycare for Yuri's Night, and that was a lot of fun and got the kids really excited. (laughs) A couple of years ago, we had the guys from NASA Edge come on the show, and uh, they were telling us about some of the events that they've been to because they they went to the, the big ones that were at NASA Ames a few years ago. Oh, yeah. And they said they were the most bizarre thing they've ever been to. (laughs) (laughs) That's fantastic. I'm glad that it was new and different. That's that's one of the the part of the magic of Yuri's Night is uh, it was created by a group of people that wanted to have a way to connect with space outside of just the facts and figures and sort of the intensity uh, that space was sort of revered uh, in the community. And they wanted a fun way for people to be able to connect with it. Yeah. And so to hear that, that the NASA Edge folks, which I love those guys, they're really keyed into making sure that things are accessible. Had a good time at those NASA Ames events is, is fantastic. So they were, uh, for the listeners who don't know, uh, the Ames Research Center is one of 10 NASA centers around the U.S. Uh, and it's out in the San Francisco Bay area of California. It's So it's got a lot of techie culture around it and one of their support organizations so basically the the gift shop which is a separate organization sponsored this huge series of events for a couple of years one was a hip-hop concert that had 10,000 people uh, attend 
They had probably the one they were talking about was at a hangar uh, out on the, the runway at Moffett Field right next to Ames, uh, where they had a bunch of art installations from the groups that go out to Burning Man in the desert. I don't know if you're familiar with Burning Man. Yeah, the, uh, yeah. Burning Man Festival. Yeah. The festival. Yeah. So those folks had their giant robots that they have and, um, you know, art installations out that they bring out to the desert for a week. And they were talking with scientists who work on robots that they send out to the deserts of Mars for years. And they ended up finding some really strange common ground talking about bearing seals and uh, coding methodologies and how do you deal with robotics in austere environments where dust is a major issue. So uh, we, I love hearing those stories where somebody says, I never thought I'd really get along with NASA people, but they, <laughs> they knew a lot about the same robots that I did, you know, and it gives people an insight that they too could be a part of the space program and that they're really connecting in in a way that they may not realize. Right. Now, well, I think we'll have a, a break there and uh, we'll, we'll carry on talking when we've had the break. The world's first cosmonaut. Greetings, fellow Earthlings. This is Richard Garriott, the 483rd person to leave our home planet and the first second-generation American astronaut. If, like me, you long to explore the cosmos, take heart. While only a few of the over 18,000 NASA applicants will fly with NASA, there are many new avenues opening up for us to use. In addition to government astronauts and private astronauts like me, we will soon see independent commercial activities in space which will be privately funded, privately planned, profitable enterprises, which will fly astronauts of their own. So the challenge I lay before you is to plan and execute some of these bold new businesses, which will lead humanity into being a multi-planet species. See you on Mars, and happy Yuri's Night. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton. Yuri's Night is a special celebration of the remarkable achievement of man's space flight. Do yourself a favor, go to www.yurisnight.net and find a party near you. Join with like-minded people and celebrate this very remarkable accomplishment and let's set our sights on keeping this planet as safe and healthy as it possibly can be. Peace. This is TGP Nominal. Welcome back to TGP Nominal, and uh, I've still got Tim Bailey with me. He hasn't uh, left me. Uh, <laughs> so, Tim, I thought we'd talk a, a little bit about space news that's going on out there at the moment. Well, there's been some news about a new space station that they're planning for the retirement of the current space station. Are, are you aware of this one? Just vaguely, I, I've, that they finally announced something that they want to launch on top of the space launch system, the, the new giant rocket that's being planned uh, in the US. I can only imagine it's going to be something similar to the, the Saturn V rockets. I can only imagine what they felt like when they launched. Have you been down to see a launch anywhere? I have, yeah. I actually saw one of the shuttles launch back in 2001 I believe it was two years in a row I actually went there and we missed a launch by a day because it got scrubbed oh so it was going the next day and we weren't anywhere near Canaveral for it but we were told what direction to look because we were in Orlando at the time the only um, place we could really get to see it was there was like an intersection on the road it was kind of like a grass 
grass area in between two roads and so we were stood there on this grass verge if you like waiting for a launch to happen and uh, these this group of german tourists came over to us and it looked like we were waiting for a bus or something you know and uh, they said well what are you doing and I said well we're waiting for a space shuttle <laughs> Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> uh, did they actually stay long enough to see it launch? Yeah, Could they you see it? it was bizarre. It really was bizarre because you see it before you hear it. Long before, even when you're close to it. So I've, I've been there for a number of space launches. I used to live down in Florida, uh, very close to the Kennedy Space Center, and we could go outside our house and hear them. Actually, when they would come back in, we it sounded like... Uh, someone was throwing garbage pails on top of the house. It was bang, bang. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I've seen several, uh, in, including Falcon launches uh, and, and Delta launches and Atlas launches. So for those that have never seen a rocket launch themselves, there is something magical about it, something visceral that hits you in the chest that cannot be conveyed by any amount of video or audio that I've ever experienced. Uh, You just have to go and see it. Just going to say that, you actually feel it. You do physically feel it hitting your chest. It is bizarre. It's fantastic. And I've heard that, uh, like you were saying, the Saturn V launches were even more powerful and that people down on Cocoa Beach felt like somebody hit them in the chest uh, when that explosion of power came out the bottom to, to lift the rocket off the launch pad. Yeah. And I'm really eager to see what some of these larger rockets that are getting ready to be launched now, both the the SLS from the government side mm-hmm. and some of these commercial uh, rockets are going to do because, man, they are it's an experience and I'm glad that more people are going to be able to, to have that experience in the future. Do you actually believe now that a space race has started? I don't mean an international space race. I just mean now that the corporate parties are now involved, there's more of a space race. I, I think there is. It's started up again and it's made it more exciting. I think that this is one of the most exciting and most accessible times for space exploration in the history of humanity. So for the 56 years that we've been a spacefaring civilization, n- at no point in in previous times have we had this many actively under development hardware on the pad spacecraft Mm -hmm. that are being designed for people I I have to stop and count them all uh, in my head to even figure out how many we have. And that's fantastic. So I don't know that I would call it a race, you know, as as far as uh, it's not a competition uh, in the traditional sense of somebody wins. Mm -hmm. But I think we all win by the fact that I'm probably never going to be selected to be an astronaut by NASA. But now, that's okay. I can still go to space with Virgin Galactic or maybe with Blue Origin. Origin, Maybe I could take a trip on SpaceX. (laughs) The thing is, now, even some of the the companies that we didn't think were actually going to make it, we've mentioned it on the show before, there's rumors that the little um, Sierra Nevada Dream Chaser might mm-hmm. be coming back again as a human-rated vessel for uh, repair missions to the Hubble. And also, it could also be used as a space ambulance for space stations. Oh, that would be fantastic. And I'm excited because the more spacecraft there are, the more people that are trying different things. The Dream Chaser is a winged vehicle. Oh, the Boeing CST-100, you know, yeah. that's a that's a traditional capsule. I was just watching some of the things about the new Blue Origin capsule that they have and uh, listening to how it fires off and, and, you know, the types of things that it's got inside with huge windows that people can see out of. Um, so just there's such a variety now. It's like cars. We're no longer stuck with one one model and one type of car that only one type of person can drive. Now there's a variety. You know, we've got car manufacturers 
that are, can create different types of cars. And I can't imagine what my kids or even my grandkids will think of a time when we thought only governments could fly people to space and we yeah. only had one or two spacecraft for the entire planet. I think that they're just going to find that ridiculous. There was a time when the shuttle got decommissioned. There was that little gap where, well, what's going to happen? Nobody knew what was going to happen. And then all of a sudden, this explosion of companies got involved and it was like, okay, we are heading in the right direction now. You know, it's it's funny. Peter Diamandis, who started the International Space University and a bunch of things, has I've heard him say a couple of times that uh, people are amazed that something is an overnight success after decades of hard work. Mm. Um, that it's always these people have been working in the background for a very long time. Oh yeah. Before somebody really notices that, and I think that you're right. There was this sense at the end of space shuttle that I heard people and they said, "Well, so when are they closing down NASA?" Or, "Well, NASA doesn't." exist anymore right because they stopped flying the space shuttle <laughs> and having to educate everybody that there's a, a variety of things that nasa does and there's this whole slate of spacecraft that are coming online my chances of flying in space are greater today than mm -hmm. they were when the space shuttle was flying and that is mind-blowing yeah. uh, and i'm so excited about all the hard work that people were doing in the background sort of unnoticed when we had a space shuttle flying so that today we do have more spacecraft and we have dragon capsules that can bring things back to us. And we've got these plans that NASA's just announced to do another space station. And this one, this one's supposed to be going around the moon, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's, it's obviously slated for the uh, 2020s because uh, we don't know how long the space station actually has at the moment because it's slated to be defunct in 2024, isn't it? I think, but that could be extended. You don't know at the moment. It could be. Things change all the time, and it seems to be every day something changes. That is true. But, uh, well, with a multinational orbiting laboratory, I can imagine that the, there will probably be a lot of plans changing over the next you know, 10, 15, 20 years, those sorts of things. But the fact that, that NASA's announced that they're going to have something new um, and not just another space station around Earth, but to put it in this orbit, I'm looking at a, a diagram of the complicated orbit that they're planning for it so that it can go around the moon and around Earth and uh, give some deep space exploration time to the astronauts so that they can prepare for a journey, say, to Mars or someplace that's going to take significantly longer to get there. I mean, we've been saying it for, for a while on the show that why don't they have a lunar base? and then they could use it as a refueling depot or something to get on to the next stage. Yes, we've had a few footprints on the moon, but there's more to the moon than that. To be able to do something in just orbit around the moon mm. uh, and that, that you can link up to. I know um, Buzz Aldrin and I think Robert Zubrin and, and others have talked about the concept of cyclers, which is just something in a constant orbit that you can come and link up with, get refueled, get resupplied, and then uh, keep moving. And, and just use gravity uh, of the large bodies to keep it moving around uh, in the solar system. And so that's that's phenomenal that they're actually talking about starting to do this. This is not a destination anymore. This is part of a transportation infrastructure. So it's it's not that we're building a new car. They're not building a new thing. They're building infrastructure to allow a number of things to happen and, and research further exploration you know you could then make a base on the moon so maybe some of the folks that are competing in the google lunar x prize to land rovers on the moon well now they have potentially a communications satellite up there you know or platform they would have a place where if they did manage to launch off the moon 
They don't have to make it all the way back to Earth. They just need to rendezvous with this uh, this new orbiting station, mm-hmm. uh, and somebody could come and pick up their stuff from them. That's fantastic. That that to me is what the government should be doing, making those those infrastructure upgrades that allow the business community to to move forward and, and make other things happen. And it just seems, uh, with this from what I've been reading about it, is that it's going to be a lot smaller than the the ISS. It's not there for long periods of time but everything is compact Uh, it's all space saving things inside it like it says here that the sleeping compartments might inflate and deflate when needed oh that would be fantastic Uh, (laughs) that sounds like the Bigelow aerospace technology yeah I know that was part of the uh, the technology that that NASA had started developing and now Bigelow has and they're supposed to be uh, doing their testing on that so I'm I'm eager to see that move ahead too that's that's a Uh, super smart way to get more volume in a space station is inflate it once it's up there instead of trying to take a whole rigid structure and move it all at once and, and it says that the fridge will have multitask as a uh, a kitchen appliance and a scientific sample storage <laughs> just don't eat the wrong thing yeah could be interesting <laughs> It's just something that needs to be, I think. They have been talking about this for a while. I mean, there's been talking about another company that is willing to to send a special module up to the ISS that uh, has got enough power on it to manoeuvre the existing parts, uh, the American side and the European side and the Japanese side, away so that they can move it to another destination. Really? Yeah. Who is that? Do you know? What's, uh, what's off the, the company top that's of my doing head, that? I cannot remember. I mentioned it about two episodes ago, and I can't remember the name of the company that was doing it now. But uh, yeah, the, this is the kind of thing that people are talking about. People are actually putting plans in effect for the future, which is one thing that um, people were worried about. As I know, we've mentioned it just now about when the, the, the shuttle got decommissioned, there wasn't a plan put in place at the time you know oh we're going to decommission the space shuttle but we haven't got anything set up in its place straight away to cover for it so that this is why everyone's been having to use the the soyuz rockets um, nothing wrong with soyuz they're a fantastic spacecraft but uh, expensive <laughs> <laughs> well when when someone has a corner on the market uh that that tends to be the case yeah uh, <laughs> So I'm eager to see uh, both the Orion capsule from NASA that, that will be starting to fly soon the, uh, and the SpaceX Dragon capsule. I'm really excited to see uh, a commercial company get certified to launch as well. Yeah, when I was seeing some of the videos that they was coming through uh, about the, the Dragon 2 capsule, I just love the control panels that just sweeps into place and it's just completely touchscreen and it's just, oh, looks so good. <laughs> I'm always interested to see what is a marketing concept and what is a real real concept. So uh, I'll, I'll wait until they get an operational one uh, ready for launch and get some more astronauts in there to test it out. It's the before same I believe it. with any industry. I mean, you look at the car industry, you see the concept car that comes out. Exactly. Then you see the street car that comes out and it's, <laughs> yeah, not quite the same. But that's okay. I think we need something to strive for and something that, you know, if nothing else, we know that SpaceX is looking for a clean sleeker more modular design that leaves a lot of room open and new thin computing and materials processes make all that possible so it does look like the future you know that that is the future we don't need necessarily the same kind of consoles that we had on apollo um you know maybe some of that's good to have but but maybe we don't need those things anymore and we can use those flexible arms 
Um, so I'm eager to see what they do come out with, what, what survives the shake and bake testing that they do on spacecraft. The, the computers that we're using back in those days on board are basically a pocket calculator in comparison to what we've got these days. Your mobile phone is, uh, I don't know how many times powerful in comparison to what they were using back then. Um, so that's something just as small as a phone. You don't need to have massive great big control panels and you can have it as minimal as you like. Well, I think the really big question for especially a launch vehicle is if there's any control that needs to be done during launch, the ability to touch a screen in just the right spot can be difficult. I know if I'm in the car going down a bumpy road, mm. I have problems typing on my phone. And I uh, assume that if a astronaut is inside of a space capsule on their way to or from space and they need to tap something out on a flat surface, that might be hard. Harder yeah. than, say, finding a, a physical switch to flip or, or press. Yeah, there is that aspect to it, too. Yeah, it is a case of just testing different solutions to the situation. It's really strange that concerned me was the fact that they're ready to send you know, an Orion capsule round the moon in 2019. They had all these different testing procedures that they were going to go through and they kind of like bypassed it and it's more like well, let's try it and see. <laughs> you know. And and then it dawned on me that's the way it's always been done. They didn't have the facilities back in the day to um, let's do an unmanned version of it first and then run tests on this. They just tried it with... Well, the first space shuttle flight, uh, which also happened on April 12th. Uh, that's why Yuri's Night is such a great holiday. It's the dual anniversary of the first human space launch by Yuri Gagarin in 1961 and the very first space shuttle in 1981, both on April 12th yeah. by accident. And having the the very first space shuttle as, as something with a crew in it was controversial, but they said we need to have people on there. And those two astronauts, uh, John Young and Bob Crippen, knew that they were taking a big risk in in flying this for the very first time. But they believed in the team that they had uh, and the testing that had been done. Mm -hmm. And that's why the astronauts were so involved in all of that testing was to give them the confidence to say, we believe that this is a safe enough vehicle for us to take on a test flight. Uh, and so oh. I, I'm, I'm hopeful that the folks involved with this moonshot are the same caliber and are deeply involved with understanding the risks that they're taking uh, because it will be risky. There, there's no doubt, no matter what happens, it will be a risk to fly in a spacecraft around the moon. Yeah, and it, and it sounds like that um, SpaceX are, are going to try it earlier, aren't they? They're going to try it in 2018. We will see. Uh, I would love to see it happen. I don't want them to rush for a date. And I and I know it sometimes feels like for the us that are that are closer to the space industry that things seem to drag on. That you know a, a 2018 launch becomes a 2019 launch becomes a 2020 launch. But this is rocket science, and so even if they're saying they're going to push to go earlier, I do not want to put any additional pressure on them to launch before they really feel like they're ready to do it. Talking of SpaceX, the last launch. What did you make of that? Uh, I thought that it was phenomenal to see the birth of true reusability that they brought back a booster for the second time and landed it uh, again which was just incredible now i know that blue origin has flown their booster multiple times and done launch abort testing with it and they they've brought it back and uh, have landed it multiple attempts but i think this is different in that spacex is doing these during live customer payload deliveries so this is an operational spacecraft first stage has now been brought back and landed twice in the same 
the same time, both under uh, commercial conditions. Like they are getting paid by someone else to use these rockets and they're being able to reuse them. Uh, That's, I think, a huge step for any company uh, to be able to prove that, but especially for for SpaceX and their reusability. Did you hear the cost for reusing that stage? Just run it past me. So they did not give out specific figures, but they did say that it costs significantly less to refurbish that first stage of the Falcon 9 and refly it than it would have for them to completely make a new one. Wow. So they're fulfilling on their promise of reusability and uh, and being able to cut their operating expenses by reusing that hardware and those engines multiple times. They did already see, even though they did a lot of extra checks on this first one, that they were still able to see a huge cost savings uh, by reusing a booster instead of making one completely from scratch. Now. I understand that their customers won't see any of that cost savings, uh, additional cost savings down the line, because they had already cut their prices, assuming that would happen eventually. So they've been sort of, it sounds like they may have been losing a little bit of money on launches up until this point, or just maybe not making the profit margins they were hoping for. And this will help them get back into that um, space where they can make uh, money that they can then invest in larger launch vehicles. Now, apparently... Uh, that wasn't the only thing that was uh, recycled from it because according to something I've read, Elon Musk announced at a post-launch news conference that the payload fairing had actually landed as well. So they'd recovered the payload fairing. So that means the, the second stage is the only part of it that hasn't been recycled. And that's that's incredible. I didn't even, I had never even thought about those payload fairings. And that's the, the pieces at the top that split apart like a banana peel uh, and, and fall off the sides once the uh, satellite has, once the rocket has cleared the majority of the Earth's atmosphere and the payload inside isn't in danger of being buffeted by the wind or things. Yeah. But I'd never even considered that that would be a cost that could be recovered. Yeah. Power. I just always considered that to be a, a, a mandatorily disposable part of a launch. So when they said that they had recovered it, my, I, I, I'm still a little bit in shock that I had never even considered that a thing that could be recovered. I just saw it as disposable. And the fact that they're thinking that far ahead to grab those pieces back out and use them again, they've really got long-term sustainability on their minds. Yeah, They're not in the one-shot business. They're in a reusable spacecraft business. And that's a completely new thing for us. From day one, I think that was in Elon Musk's mind. It was That was their first priority, was to try and get it as reusable technology. And uh, in the space of time that they've been able to do it, is just remarkable. Yeah. It, it really is. I mean, I remember seeing those videos of the grasshopper <laughs> back in the day, scaring those cows across the field. <laughs> that was just remarkable, seeing it going, you know, a, a, a few hundred feet in the air and then landing again. But to actually get it to go into to orbit and back down again, it's like, yeah, this is, uh, this is remarkable. One of the speakers that we had at Yuri's Night in Los Angeles talked about the SpaceX launches, but that the most remarkable part was that they have their own employees outside of their mission control watching and waiting. Uh, and they have their webcast now where you can watch online and see all the mission timelines and they go back and forth. And when something amazing happens, the people that are most invested in it are right there screaming and yelling and clapping. And it's not so much being excited that a rocket came back and landed on a launch pad again. 
like I, I can get the technological implications and cost benefit savings, you know, and, and those sorts of things. But to see the joy on their faces, I feel connected to the people. And I understand how excited those people are and I get excited with them and I'm pumping my fists and my kids are downstairs uh, yelling, woo, woo, when the rocket lands, you know, and it's, we get to see and feel the joy that they have in their jobs and, and what they're enabling humanity to do right along with them. And I think that's part of the magic of what SpaceX is giving us is that excitement uh, of being able to participate right along with them as they do these things. I was talking with a friend of mine about this uh, a little while ago, how the different countries actually deal with space launches, where you have the Russians, where it's a case of, right, let's go to space. That's it, pretty much. The Chinese are very happy about things. You can see them waving and, and everything in, in the capsule and, and things like that. NASA, not so much. It's, it could be there's a, a history of how things are done. And then you've got the new space people, and it's just exciting to see. They're a little more open with, with how excited they are and getting to see it. Now, I will say, I've participated in a couple of the NASA social events, which is where um, even at the end of the space shuttle program, they were allowing social media people, uh, you know, just somebody with a Twitter account or a Facebook account yeah. or an Instagram to come out and participate in launches. And I was uh, lucky enough to be selected to go out uh, on one of those. And it was great that the professional media had someone else to focus on because mm -hmm. we were the ones that would stand next to the countdown clock, trembling with anticipation and crying when we saw a space shuttle launch. And that was the human part of the story that had not really been able to be told immediately you know the the reporters that were at the uh, the press site were, were around other reporters who were busy writing mm -hmm. and for the most part we were able to be that sensing mechanism and really feel all of the emotions around watching a launch yeah and express them that i think started the trend of oh my gosh we should have people here we should really be showing people reacting to this launch uh, and, and uh, so that other people know it's okay to be excited. It's it's okay to cry a little bit when the, the shuttle clears the tower and starts its roll maneuver. That's what's supposed to happen. That's how you know things are going well. But that, that started uh, like a next generation for NASA because then you had the likes of Bo Back. Is it? Bobak Fredowski. Yeah. Yes. He's actually been at Yuri's Not LA several times. Yeah. He is a, now a celebrity in his own right. <laughs> Forever known as the guy with the Mohican, but... Uh... Yeah. <laughs> Mohawk guy, yeah. <laughs> but he showed that there was a whole different side of NASA that some people had never seen. Yeah. And I think that was really valuable, uh, and I, I applaud NASA for um, helping to showcase that there are a lot of people, young people, people of color, all different genders, all different hairstyle expressions that can participate in these launches. For a very, very long time, the image of NASA was a white guy with glasses, a white shirt, and a skinny black tie. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, uh, that, and, that's sort uh, of the right stuff, uh, launch controllers. <laughs> and I know uh, so many people, women in mission control and flight directors and astronauts. Mm -hmm. uh, well, you've only got they, to look at uh, New Horizons for that because I think it was something like 25% of the team behind New Horizon were women. There was a couple of English girls on the team as well. So. <laughs> Space is an international endeavor and it's it's for everyone. Uh, and that's not just everyone that's an engineer. 
You know, there are plenty of artists and historians and communications folks that that write press releases and do all those things that are are necessary for for a space program to work in addition to the technicians and the engineers and the electricians and the welders and the plumbers and the (laughs) and the janitors that make things work and i'm glad that uh we're in an era now where we can see all those people and they can have a voice and say oh yeah I help make space happen too. And and there's so many characters coming out there now. I mean, um, if, if you remember the, the the Rosetta mission, you had uh, uh, their chief scientist for for the Rosetta mission, uh, uh, Matt Taylor. Uh, I don't know if you remember him, the guy with the beard and the loud shirts and tattoos. <laughs> yeah, right. What? Somebody that I would not normally peg as a, a principal investigator for a, a space mission. Yeah, but he's such a guy. He's and he's so passionate about what he does as well and it does show it really does and that's fantastic that he's allowed to do that and to show his passion and to be really excited about what he does so i think that connects with people a lot more than uh reciting facts about launch speeds or thrust potential or even you know how much data we're going to be getting back over the the lifespan of the mission but someone's passion for going out and and learning about the universe that's what really connects with people and that what is what gets them excited about being the next generation of scientists of engineers or of astronauts. Now, we're going to have another short break, and then when we come back, we had another guest on the show recently, and I'm going to play it in. Hello, everyone. This is Steph Evs of the YouTube channel The Stimulus. One of the main reasons I started my channel was in the hopes of inspiring young people to pursue their interest in science, technology, engineering, and math careers, or STEM careers. And events like Yuri's Night are very important in achieving the same goal. In this case, promoting an interest in space exploration. Yuri's Night is a celebration of the achievements of the past that will likely inspire the heroes of the future that will lead us out into the solar system. And that's why Yuri's Night helps rock the planet. We can thank the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, the USSR, for many things. They invented the space race, they put the first people in space, the first dogs in space, the first space walker, the first robot car on the moon. I never met Yuri Gagarin, the first man in space, but I did meet Alexei Leonov once. And he would have been the man to land that, the lunar cabin, the Soviet moon lander the moon surface if only the N1 moon rocket had worked and the Russians had got there before the Americans. I never ever ever thought I'd see that. That was secret for so many years and it's wonderful to see it here at the exhibition Cosmonauts at the Science Museum in London celebrating our greatest achievement. So thank you everybody in the American and Russian space programs. Because without their efforts, we wouldn't be able to do stuff like this today. We wouldn't have the great technological advance which led to microprocessors and data storage, which allows me to do things like this. Thank you, Yuri. Thank you, Alexei. Happy Yuri's night. Blast off into the potosphere with TGP Nominal. 
Joining us on the line from NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center is Dr. Eric Smith, who is the James Webb Space Telescope Program Director. Thanks for joining us this morning, Eric. Uh, my pleasure. Now, we have a few things we'd like to ask you about the program, if that's okay. <laughs> All right, go for it. Firstly, why is the Space Telescope called James Webb? James Webb was NASA's second administrator after the agency was founded in the late 1950s. And he is responsible for designing the Apollo program. That was, of course, a very successful program, took us to the moon. But uh, we've named a science experiment after him because he argued very effectively at that time with then President Kennedy, who wanted NASA to just be all about beating the Soviets to the moon. And Webb argued that in order to achieve that goal, you needed to have the best scientists and engineers and to attract them you need to let them do their science and so there's science at the agency because James Webb recognized its importance so if it wasn't for him they wouldn't be any of it uh, probably no science at NASA that's certainly uh, arguably true I mean, looking at the, the Space Telescope, and I really wish I had a chance to get down there because I'm just north of you. I'm just outside of Harrisburg. Oh, okay. That's, I grew up in Camp Hill. Oh, oh my. I'm in Shirenstown. Oh, okay. <laughs> We're neighbors. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Mark, for your own reference, uh, Shirenstown actually shares Camp Hill's zip code. Oh, okay. We're, we're <laughs> yeah. We're basically right next to each other. But the one thing with the James Webb is that I know that a lot of people who aren't following it very closely are going to be saying, oh, well, this is a Hubble replacement. That's not really true, is it? Uh, that's right. Uh, it's, we like to call it the scientific successor to the Hubble Space Telescope. So Hubble has revealed many uh, amazing things about the universe, but it is also shown where its limits are. There are things it just cannot do because it's a visible, optimized for visible light, and its mirror is a certain size. To go beyond what Hubble can see, we knew we needed a bigger telescope. So our mirror area is seven times larger uh, than Hubble's. And because we knew that some of the science was going to be in the infrared part of the spectrum, the heat part of the spectrum, not so much visible light, we made a much larger infrared optimized. So you can think of it as uh, continuing the legacy of Hubble science, uh, but it's also very complementary. It doesn't duplicate what Hubble does. Right, because doesn't Hubble also operate in the ultraviolet range? That's correct. Uh, Hubble can see down to, you know, blue word of where humans can see. And Hubble sees a little bit into the infrared as well. But uh, Webb is optimized. It sees a little bit into the visible, the very reddest part of the spectrum that our eyes can see, and then much farther out into the infrared. So would James Webb and Hubble be able to simultaneously examine the same objects but across a broad spectrum of frequencies? That's what a lot of folks are planning on right now. Hubble has continued its uh, amazing success story and uh, now folks think both will be operating at the same time and uh, I know there are already people thinking wow it would be amazing to get images of the same thing uh, at the same time. Of course most things in space don't change that rapidly so you can observe it with one and then come back and observe it with the other a little bit later. Now, the, the Space Telescope is due to launch from Kourou in French Guiana on, on a, an Ariane 5 next year. Now, as you know, they've, they've currently got uh, all their launches on hold at the moment due to the 
the protests going on there. Do you think that with possible backlog of launches, it might affect the, the launch of, of the telescope? That clearly depends on how long the uh, unrest goes on down there. If it goes on long enough, then it would start uh, backing up. The launch queue would back up. Some of the launches can go at any time. Others require certain launch windows. So that would be the job of uh, Ariane Spas and in our case, the European Space Agency, who uh, that's our interface to Ariane Spas. We would have to work out uh, how that would affect our launch window. One of the things that the Hubble was designed to do was be maintained by astronauts You know, during its life cycle. Obviously, we don't have a shuttle program anymore. We don't have any way to get anyone to the James Webb Space Telescope if something goes wrong. So what kind of things did you end up doing for this to to make sure that everything is perfect because you, you have no backup? Well, interestingly, Hubble really is the only satellite that was designed to be serviced and, and was, in fact, serviced. So we're following the procedures that are normal in the aerospace industry. In our case, we're using what we call a sort of a pathfinder philosophy. So you build models of what the flight unit will look like and you test those models and you practice with those and then you build a, a next generation model that's a little closer to the flight unit and so this pathfinder approach allows us to test out hardware along the way to the flight build and then once you have the flight build it has to go through a very extensive test program itself and that's sort of where we are right now in the program it's a very challenging phase and we also do things like uh, where there are electric motors, we have two ways to address the motor. In some cases, we have redundant motors. So where you can build in redundancy, you do it. There are some things, obviously, we only have one secondary mirror on the telescope, so you can't make that redundant. Uh, but the philosophy is use the Pathfinder approach, build in redundancy where you can, and test, test, test. <laughs> you never get too much testing done. Yeah, eventually you have to take it away from the engineers because they would just test it forever. <laughs> After launch, how long will it take the telescope to reach its orbit? And once there, how long before we start getting results back? So it takes us about a month to get out to the second Lagrange point, L2. And that's about a million miles from Earth, four times farther than the orbit of the moon. Uh, we get there in a month. But because we're this infrared observatory, we need to cool down. You want the telescope to be very cold so you don't see your own heat from the telescope. And that process of cooling down and then calibrating the telescope takes another five months. So you can expect to see the first science about six months after what we call the commissioning phase. This is where we're checking out the instruments, we're calibrating them so that they're ready for the science community. So why is James Webb having to travel a lot further than Hubble for its science? This, again, relates back to the infrared optimization of the telescope. Because we're looking for very faint signals of heat from the universe, we want to be far from any large sources of heat ourselves. And the Earth is a big source of uh, infrared radiation, so a lot of satellites only orbit a few hundred miles above the Earth. We want to be very far from the Earth. And uh, that means if we go to this L2 point, it's a semi-stable point in the gravity field of the Earth and the Sun. So we don't need to use a lot of fuel to keep us in an orbit around that. And then we follow the Earth around the Sun. And uh, because we're out at this L2 point, it allows us also to keep the Earth, the Sun, and the Moon sort of in the same direction 
direction in the sky. So we only need a sun shield, like a parasol, rather than a tube to protect us from that light. Okay, so you mentioned that it it does have a fuel reserve on board, but is it going to get most of its energy from solar panels? And based on that, given the absolute optimal situation, how long can the James Webb Space Telescope be operable out there? Well, you're right in that we get all our electrical power from solar panels. And uh, we're not a very power-hungry mission, so there's there's plenty of uh, electrical power for us to uh, do the science for a long, long time. Our life-limiting factor is the fuel that we use for station keeping, and we are carrying about 10 years worth of fuel. Now, we could even imagine that being stretched a little bit longer than 10 years by such factors as uh, if we get a very precise launch trajectory from the Ariane 5 rocket, then we don't have to use any fuel to sort of correct uh, ourselves going into orbit, so we might save a little fuel there. And I suspect as the Space Telescope Science Institute learns how to operate the telescope, they may even think of um, you know, ways to conserve fuel. So uh, we'll take 10 years of fuel and hopefully we can squeeze another couple of years out of it as well. And that doesn't mean that it won't be operable after that. What would be the, the uh, issues with that? That running out of fuel. It might seem obvious, but in this, at the same time, not so much. We actually point the telescope not using fuel. We don't use these uh, fuel jets to move us around and, and point. We use uh, the gyroscope effect. So we have six spinning wheels on the telescope, and by changing the rates of spin, that's how we point uh, ourselves at different places in the sky. But after time, one or more of these gyroscopes gets spun up to such a high degree that you would need to use fuel to de-spin it, we say. Eventually, if you don't have any fuel, you can't de-spin it, and then you're less able to control where it looks. That doesn't mean you can't get data back from it, but now you're just sort of looking at random places in the sky. Can you tell us a little bit more about the technology behind the actual way that it actually folds into the uh, Ariane 5 rocket and then what happens after it's deployed. Yeah, this is a very uh, exciting, uh, almost in the Chinese proverb sense of that uh, feature of the telescope. Because our mirror is bigger than the diameter of any rocket fairing, we knew we had to somehow fold it up. And uh, we actually did you know, little origami experiments early on to try to decide what's the best way to cut up a mirror and then uh, have it deploy or fold out. And so we looked at designs that um, had things that almost looked like flower petals, where some were folded down and some were folded up, and then they either you know folded back down or folded up to form a mirror. The current design we have is a little bit like a drop leaf table, where the sides uh, pop up. Uh, there were even designs that had uh, a hexagonal segment, but they were stacked up almost like uh, Pringles potato chips, and they would spin out and drop down to form a big mirror that way. So those were studies that were done in the late 1990s, and uh, it, it was a very interesting time to see which of the deployment schemes would win out. Uh, in the end, we came up with probably what's the, the simplest one, and usually the simplest thing is the easiest to manufacture then, too. Will the James Webb have uh, a part to play in the researching of the planets that uh, orbit in the TRAPPIST-1 star? Oh, most certainly. So th- this is a very recent and exciting discovery of these seven planets, uh, some of which lie within what we call the habitable zone, that they're close enough to the star that the, if there is liquid water, it, if there is water, it would be in the liquid form, and it's close enough that it would be a very prime target 
for uh, Webb. So the, the only question is, will somebody propose that in the first cycle of observations or will they wait till the second? But people are definitely going to be looking at that and probably even other nearby exoplanets. Okay. Uh, well, that also brings in, in another question. How do you schedule time? People don't just say, oh, hey, let's just make this request to, ha to have them look at this thing. That all needs to be scheduled. You know, and people get their own little slice of, of when they can use the James Webb T Space Telescope. So how do you go about doing that? How do you go about prioritizing what tasks it should do first uh, you know, and, and putting some others on the back burner? Good question. So the, at the Space Telescope Science Institute, uh, which is uh, just off the Johns Hopkins campus in Baltimore, they run a competition. Uh, every year they put out a so-called call for proposals, and people send in their ideas, and then they convene several hundred uh, scientists come in and review all these proposals. And it's through that mechanism that people decide, wow, this is really exciting. I think we should do this. Um, you know, this one's... Not, not such an interesting idea, or this one's good, but it needs some improvement. And so through this peer review process, you assemble a big list of these are the science programs we'd like to do. Then you give that to the software that controls the telescope, and that optimizes the uh, schedule for the telescope throughout that year. And it's there that you begin to try to figure out how can I minimize my use of fuel by scheduling these things. And unlike Hubble, we are a, an event-driven telescope. So we'll give the telescope a, a week or so many days worth of things to do and tell it, you know, go, go look at these objects. If it encounters a fault or it finishes early, it'll just go on to the next thing. Hubble, uh, because it's a much older telescope and operating system, it was time tagged. So Hubble was told every second what it should be doing. And if it ran into a problem, uh, it, it would just have to wait until the next scheduled event came along before it could do anything. Whereas Webb, if it's done or it encounters a problem, it's just going to go on to the next thing in its schedule, uh, thereby increasing its efficiency. What other kind of tests are you going to be doing for it, besides obviously launch preparation? just to make sure that it's all ready because it's almost a year and a half. You know, we've had a lot of challenges putting this together, inventing the technologies, manufacturing them, and now uh, it's basically integrated into two big parts. The, here at Goddard, they have the actual telescope itself and the science instruments, the cameras and spectrographs. And then out at Northrop Grumman, they have the spacecraft bus, the thing that holds the fuel tanks and batteries, uh, and also the sun shield. So Eventually, those two things will come together uh, later in 2017, but each component goes through some pretty severe tests. So they put it on shaker tables that shake it with the same uh, vibration frequencies that it will see on the Ariane 5 rocket. They blast it with the sound of a launch, which at 140 decibels is uh, you know, 30 decibels wow. louder than a typical rock concert. They will put it into thermal vacuum chambers where they take the, the hardware down to temperatures about 40 degrees above absolute zero. They will, of course, measure all the optics to make sure they still reflect light down into the instruments the way they're supposed to. And then they will do deployment testing. They'll practice all these pieces that need to fold out uh, and fold up 
Uh, they'll do tests for those and then they'll fold it all up and they'll deploy it again. And usually in these tests, I mean, you find problems. That's why you test it in the first place, because you want to make sure it will eventually work in space. So you're right in that uh, it, it seems pretty close, but there's a lot of hard work that goes on between now and then to verify that the stuff we've built actually will work the way we want it to. Finally, how can our listeners find out more about the mission? You can send them to jwst.nasa.gov. And at that website, they'll find uh, not only text and images about the hardware, but there are links to YouTube videos showing how different pieces have been manufactured or tested. Uh, there's a Flickr link to uh, hundreds or probably even thousands of images of the hardware, uh, little stories about some of the people involved. It's a pretty uh, well-developed website. I know, I know you're a very busy man, but thanks again for taking the, the time out to speak with us this morning, Eric. Oh, my pleasure. It's been an absolute pleasure privilege to chat with someone who's involved in such an important mission and any way we can uh, help spread the message is great and uh, look forward to you guys helping us get that message out and seeing as how i live so close maybe next time when we chat it can actually be person to person now i live down in maryland but if i'm up in camp hill we could probably oh, do that i'd have no problem coming down there <laughs> less than two hours come on yeah that's true it's, it's about an hour and a half from there i suppose uh, we better let you get back to it and um yeah, we, we hope to work with you guys in the future. Okay, well, I'm sure folks at NASA love talking about their work, so, you know, just get in touch, and I'm sure they'll be happy to do so. Thanks again. Yep, yep, thank you. Okay, you're welcome. Bye-bye. Now, before we carry on, I'd just like to thank the, the good folks at uh, uh, NASA's uh, Goddard Space Flight Center for making the arrangements for that uh, interview possible. Now, uh, how cool was that? It was very cool. I, it was amazing to hear from somebody that's so deeply involved in the James Webb Space Telescope all about it. I've actually been up to the Goddard Space Flight Center on one of those NASA socials and got to see uh, the clean room where they had the James Webb Space Telescope and they were putting those hexagonal pieces of the mirror together and it was it's a large telescope so originally we were told we were going to have 10 minutes with him and we got halfway through his answer to a question i thought are they going to cut us off i, I didn't know how this was going to work and he just kept going and so i thought all right i'll ask him another question see how it goes and so we were, eventually we got 20 minutes <laughs> it, was, uh, it was brilliant to to actually be speaking with NASA and, and other agencies that are out there. It just brings it all home, and, and that's what the podcast is all about. Well, thank you for doing this and for bringing the uh, information out to people. I think it's it, sometimes the human element of this amazing technology gets lost in looking at how big the mirror is or how far it can see or which Lagrange point it's going to be stationed at and how long it's going to take and for the sun shield to unfold and some of the technical aspects sort of overshadow the amazing people that are working on all of these technologies. And so I, I appreciate the fact that you're working so hard to bring their stories to the front and that the whole James Webb team with the website, um, you know, makes those those people accessible because I think that's really important for inspiring the next generation of people that will go out and be those engineers and explorers and astrophysicists. It's amazing that, uh, you know, what technology can do to bring all these different stories to your home. And... I will say it is super amazing the technology stuff that they're being able to do. I mean, the the thought of sitting around a table with someone playing with origami and years <laughs> later watching something that evolved from that, you know, playing with origami 
being a space telescope that can peer into wavelengths that we haven't previously been able to to see and in ways that we haven't been able to like that's fascinating that's an amazing story it's very relatable i can imagine sitting around with somebody like i don't know should we do it like this should we do it like that and then to have that translated into a giant piece of space hardware is just fantastic. But when you think about origami is, is a technique that goes back thousands of years and then to have it put into the future, it's pretty incredible. It really is. It's amazingly incredible. And, and the one thing that I, I wasn't aware of is how far away that they've actually got to launch this thing in. I mean, it's going to take a month to get there. Uh, there's, there's no way, even if we did have a space shuttle now, there's no way you take a month to get there to repair it and then a month to come back well maybe Uh, if we've got this cool smaller space station around the moon you know we'll have a place that we can refuel and and head out from there you know deep space to deep space or or, you know beyond low earth orbit uh location so maybe it won't be such a problem to uh to do some of those things heck maybe we'll have a lot of stuff in those lagrange points uh at, at some point and we'll have a cycler that just goes between all of them it's almost like a stargate isn't it (laughs) Wouldn't that be neat? Uh, We are living in a very exciting time. And I think it's exciting in a good way. At the moment, it just feels like the geek shall inherit the earth. (laughs) Well, and that's why it's important to tell these stories and to let kids and and people that are not even in industry yet know that there's a place for them and that, you know, these amazing technological advances aren't something that are out of their reach. I actually met someone through Makers, which is people that do things by hand. So it's 3D printing, it's doing electronics works, but the maker movement is sort of this recapturing the artisanal way of doing interesting things yourself instead Mm -hmm. of always sending it out to a factory. And she was a textile artisan. She worked with a lot of uh, costumes and she did a lot of things with textiles and ended up through just a series of happenstances to be working with somebody on spacesuits. She had so much uh, experience with how performers needed to move in clothing. She had done some uh, experimenting with different materials that she ended up working with a team that was making new spacesuit components. Uh, And she said, you know, I never would have thought that I could have a place in space because I made stage costumes. Once again, that's where the A comes into steam. Yeah. The art side of science. And it turns out she had a very big role to play because no one from their hard science background had the same kind of knowledge base that she did from working costuming actors and knowing what needed to stretch and what could stay rigid and where those you know pinch points were in a costume that might be very elaborate and and that was a a huge skill set that was missing that people didn't even realize um needed to be there at first so i always love telling these stories and giving people opportunities you know where can where can you fit into the space program where can your uh, love of origami help the space program Mm. where can your love of costume design you know think about it in terms of space interior design even Uh, all those things are important i'd never actually thought of the art side of things before a couple of years ago uh we got loretta on the show and she is a big ambassador for putting art into stem and then it dawned on me you look at some of the artists from the past people like leonardo da vinci who was also an inventor there are books of some of his diagrams that he came up with concepts for things and it's actually been proven that some of them would work so yeah art and science hand in hand so loretta hidalgo whitesides which is who is one of the uh, the co-founders of yuri's night she was one of the original three people that 
thought up this crazy concept, but that is that's why they she pushes so hard to make sure that we have artists and and musicians at at Yuri's night events that that uh, she produces uh, out in LA is to show off that that cross section of skills that are really necessary for both groups to move forward. You know, there's a, a lot of material science and uh, engineering that can go into artwork, and there's certainly a place for art in all of the the sciences and technology areas. In fact, I've heard a lot of talk lately about how much we need graphic designers to do the infographics. So all of the data display methodologies, because an engineer thinks about data in one way, but a person outside of that field may think about that data in a very different way. And a graphic designer can help to blend those two worlds and to show what the data really shows, but in a way that's authentic uh, to to what the science is. And so making sure that those people are brought in at, from the very beginning when you start talking about showing off data or making tables or charts uh, so that you don't end up telling the wrong story with raw data. Mm-hmm. I mean, the way uh, Eric was talking about the tests that they run on for vibration and things where he was talking about... Uh, you know, they put it through the same kind of velocity that it would be on takeoff from an Ariane 5, and the, the fact that they they um, blast the sound louder than it would be at a, a rock concert. It's just, that, once again, these kind of technologies have come from, like, Hollywood and um, video game development and things like that. Right. Once again, art. Glad that we're that we're at a point where uh, there's a, a recognition that that art has a place with the sciences, uh, and that they're not separate, they're not different things. They're all part of this continuum that that helps us understand and explore our world. Yeah, definitely, and it's just fantastic to to get all these different people involved with projects because i think if if you get so many people from different aspects of life, you, you're going to come up with different results. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, that's. That's why I love the the fact that we have Yuri's Nights in so many different places and so many different types of groups put them on. We have music groups that want to go and have just a big rock concert and, and do Yuri's Night and have somebody like Pharrell Williams, uh, you know, playing a concert. But it's also about space and they, they put a space spin on it or an art exhibition that's all about space. You know, and, and these are things that draw communities together that might not otherwise cross paths. And when you've got an opportunity for astronauts and artists and scientists and soccer moms to all be in one place on the same sort of level uh, and be able to talk to each other, I think you find a lot of common ground and you find a lot of unexpected places where they can work together. And some of these things like, you know, using the sound technicians from a rock concert to be able to simulate a rocket launch. That's that's phenomenal. That's amazing. (laughs) Uh, What a great part time job. Yeah, I always say that about people who work in um, special effects and things like that for movies. It's like, wow, that's something that I'd love to get involved in. I actually do know people in the special effects community um, and uh, uh, the, the makeup and things like that for different movies. And it's, it's just a different world. Uh, that's the kind of thing we also embrace on this podcast as well when, when we're doing our more uh, the, the geek side of it rather than the space side of it, as I like, or even though they go hand in hand, because we try and embrace everything. Uh, so if it's in print or on the screen or whatever, we, we try and embrace it on that side of it, and then we try and keep it real by having the the science and the space side of it as well. 
so that we try and cover everything. I think there's a magic in just trying things, right? Like you said, you wanted to go do special effects. I would say just call your friends up and say, can I come and help? Can I try it out? Uh, a lot of times I feel like when I when I don't know what I'm doing 100% and I just go try it out for fun, I learn something, even if it's that I'm really no good at it and I don't want to do it anymore. Yeah. I learn so much just from being there and being around it and watching other people performing their craft that I think it's it's magnificent to be able to to go out and just try. Uh, and I would say, I know you had talked about previously uh, doing a Yuri's Night event and that you're you're working on it next. But I know that you've already made a lot of connections by just attempting a Yuri's Night event, yeah. uh, you know, for the first time. The amount of people that embraced us to help us out. The, the space community is just phenomenal. They really are. And when you reach out to them, they'll reach back and, and support you. And I think, you know, the other communities do as well. That's one of the reasons why I got involved with Yuri's Night on a global level is because I did have an event. I met Loretta in 2004, got excited put on an event and it was a complete failure. It was at the Orlando Science Center in Florida. All right. <laughs> nobody yep. nobody showed up. It was a it was a terrible event. Wow. But I learned so much from that. I learned so much about how much I needed to do um, with marketing and with building a team that I went on and did huge events after that. Mm -hmm. uh, but I learned so much just by trying it. And, and even though the event itself was a pretty colossal failure, I still learned a bunch of things and people the next time we wanted to do one were eager to get involved and make it even better. And so, you know, if there's anybody out there that I know this uh, if podcast is coming out right around the 12th, but it, even if it doesn't matter, you know, do a Yuri's night anyways. If it's just you and three of your friends, do one, take some pictures and next year show those pictures off and say, we're going to do an even bigger one next time. And I bet, I bet you will get some people in. Everybody's happy to share and to, to say what they know and what's worked for them and to uh, show off of photos from and videos from their events. And so if there's ever anything that you need from the Yuri's Night community, I've, I've seen lots of people connect across the entire world, you know, and, and ask for uh, help planning or how do I do this? Does anyone know somebody that does that? And and get a lot of support doing that because everybody wants to to help each other out. So I'm I'm glad that you guys are keeping it fresh every year by having something new and different. And I really really look forward to promoting your event next year. Thank you for that. That would be amazing if you could do that. When we came up with the idea for um, our first well, big podcast which was the uh, space cadets guide to space <laughs> it was just a, a, a name at first we didn't know where we were going to go with it and uh, uh, i said well maybe we can get somebody to answer some questions for us go on social media and get some questions and we, we got questions from all over the place we got or, or a teacher from a school who actually got a, a, a load of questions from the, the kids at their school to ask questions and it's like well, we're definitely going to have to find someone to answer these questions now <laughs> so uh i just reached out to the guys at the national space center in in leicester in the uk and uh, uh they said yeah come along and uh we'll uh, a couple of our educators along and uh we'll ask the questions and we'll, we'll move around the different exhibits at the facility to explain and, and answer the questions. We were with them for about three hours in total, just going around the exhibits, talking about 
you know, meteorites and asteroids and all <laughs> kinds of stuff. And, you know, kids were asking questions like, uh, what does it smell like on the ISS and all this kind of thing. Um, and, um, you know, just uh, weird and wonderful questions like, how do you launder clothes up on the ISS and <laughs> different stuff like that? Well, that's phenomenal. I, I actually, um, because I, I work with Zero Gravity Corporation, it's a parabolic flight company, and we do all fun flights where people just come up to, to have fun experiencing weightlessness, but also research. I've actually seen a research project, and they were testing out a new washing machine for the International Space Station. <laughs> I have seen that research. It's It's incredible. <laughs> so if you ever thought that laundry and space had nothing to do with each other, wrong. Yeah, it's... It's just bizarre, the things that they do up on the ISS. I mean, for me, uh, one of my guilty pleasures is, is uh, anything to do with 3D printing. And when they had their 3D printer installed on the ISS, I was like, yes, this is where it happens. Because, you know, if, if something breaks, you can have it printed, the, the data sent up to the... The, the space station have it printed there a few hours later you've got the part that you need and they actually proved that with that um that wrench that they uh, had made up there yeah well i so i've i again i've met some of those folks uh the made in space folks and they have such an incredible vision for the future of space travel they they founded their company and made those printers put them on station to to get people thinking in terms of reusability and sustainability for long-term space missions. Yeah. They said, you know, we're not going to be able to take all the parts we need with us. Yeah, make, uh, make it when you're there. Yeah, well, or, or when you're in, in route. If you've got a piece that breaks and it's already made out of plastic that we know we can melt and reuse, then we can literally take a broken part and make a new part out of it. Well, there was also that company that wanted to make habitation units. For example, on the, on the moon, where you've got all the, the regolith everywhere, it actually uses the regolith to actually 3D print habitable units. So it's uh, inflatable on the inside, and it moulds around it, and then it just deflates, and then once it's set, you've got a building, and it's already there, automatically made, before you actually arrive. See, that's brilliant. That's brilliant to be able to start making habitats before people are already there. So when you land, you've got a place to go, to yeah. call home. I mean, it's, it's, it's basically industrial strength paper mache when you think about it. You know when you used to have a balloon and put the paper mache over the top and burst the balloon and you've, you've got the set mould around it? It's the same principle but with more heavy duty material. <laughs> but uh, I, I love all this and, and, and the things you can do with 3D printing now because there, I don't think there's a single material that you can't use to make things on a, on a 3D printer. There is a 3D printer that can cope. I know I've seen things made with wood fill. I've seen some that have like some bronze type stuff in there. Uh -huh. uh, yeah, I, actually I bought a 3D printer uh, for my house a couple of months back. Uh, but um, I always thought they were, much like people think about space, I thought of 3D printing as something far out of my reach. And I was uh, talking to a group of students and one of them came up and said, oh, yeah, I have this printer at home. I got it with my birthday money. And I thought, wow, you have a really different scale of birthday money than I do. <laughs> well, so he told me about a printer uh, that he got off of Amazon. It was fully assembled. 
It's it's not very big, but he said, oh yeah, I'm, I use it to make parts for uh, to support our printer at school, off of this two hundred dollar printer. All right, that was on Amazon. It was called a Mono Price MP Select. I, I got one and I was printing on it uh, about an hour after I took it out of the box, and that was incredible to me. It's done a perfectly fine job for exploring three D printing. It's in its infant stages because I've only really started putting it together but now i have all the parts i need so it's only a matter of time now before i've got a 3d printer that i've actually built myself oh wow well uh that you will probably have a much larger build space and know a lot more about your printer by having done it yourself than what i know about this one Hey everyone, uh, I'm Rod Roddenberry. My father was Gene Roddenberry, creator of Star Trek. And uh, I wanted to share with you sort of my admiration for, for the concept of Yuri's Night, as well as the organization that puts it on. Um, to, to celebrate uh, a man, an astronaut, who so long ago went into space, you know, he's our first human to go into space and, and reach beyond the bounds of Earth, that is spectacular. And not only that, the team behind him that made it happen, the men and women, of, uh, of Soviet Union, spectacular. Um, but what, what I really love about Yuri's Night is, is not so much our, our journey beyond this earth, but what it represents, at least to me now, especially in this day and age. Um, we are celebrating a human's uh, uh, accomplishments. We are celebrating a group of humans' accomplishments. Not necessarily Americans, not Russians, not any one group, but the human group, the human ability to reach for something that seemed impossible uh, over 50 years ago, but turned out to be uh, achievable. And so if I, if I can share any one thing, it's the fact that, that you know, I come from the Star Trek background where we look at the future as a united Earth. And that's, to me, what Yuri's Night is doing. Yuri's Night is celebrating the accomplishments of a human being and a group of humans who came together to aspire to something greater. And if there's anything that I ask for you to take away, please take that away. Uh, We're in a divided world right now, and I think the more that we can come together and appreciate the differences and uniquenesses between us and and thirst and crave for those differences and uniquenesses between us, uh, the better off we'll all be. So... Congratulations to everyone that is celebrating Yuri's Night. Congratulations to everyone that is hosting events celebrating Yuri's Night. And congratulations to Yuri Gagarin and the entire team that brought him out there. Take care, everyone. Hello, ciao, bonjour, hello, and privet. I'm Samantha Cristoforetti. Italian ESA astronaut, living and working weightless in space, constantly free-falling around our home planet, gives me a proud sense of following in the footsteps of humanity's first explorer of space, Yuri Gagarin. On the 12th of April each year, the international space community joins together to celebrate and commemorate Yuri's flight into space back in 61. Today, I am glad to join your festive celebrations. No matter where your Yuri's Night event is taking place right now, remember the historic moment and keep in your minds and souls. Exploration of space is the destiny and the future of humanity. 
enjoy and rock the planet. Spanhead Productions are a small independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spanhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visit us now. Spamheadproductions.weebly.com. That's spamheadproductions.weebly.com. Yes, it was. The first so I think we better start wrapping things up. Have you got anything out there that you would like to plug? Or, or obviously, Yuri's night. So if you can tell people where to go online. I mean, I know some people have come from that website anyway, but there's bound to be some people out there that haven't come from the website so if you can just tell everybody how to get in touch or get involved with with yuri's night sure so we have a website yuri's uh if you just search for it it'll be easy to find uh there are resources on there free music free videos uh, you can take our logo and use it or remix it um we allow people to do anything that they want with the resources that they've got that that is fun and uh causes people to celebrate space uh, and the people that make space happen. So uh, if you go to yurisnight.net, you can even do like you've done and register a uh, event, uh, put it on the global map. You can see where other events are happening. So if you just want to check and see if maybe there's something around the corner or in a place you'd like to go, uh, there's a global list of public events that are happening that are put on by people all over the planet. Uh, and if you don't see something and you still want to have a Yuri's Night, I encourage everybody out there to just do it. It can be you and a friend at your house watching a science fiction movie you could do a, a viewing of the star wars you could watch space balls uh you could watch red dwarf um you know find something that you love go watch some old classic doctor who uh and and just make a fun night of celebrating the fact that we are a spacefaring species and we do amazing things as a planet uh out there together celebrating science technology art uh, music and the way that all of those things feed together to make us a better species and a species worthy of going to the stars. So uh, check out yurisnight.net. Um, if, you, if you're not sure what a party looks like, go online and search any social media site with the hashtag yurisnight and you will see some of the events that have already happened that were absolutely out of this world. Uh, the costumes and the fun that, that's been had. Uh, and let that be your inspiration. So do something this year, but then if you want to, go out and do something fun next year too. Go ahead and start planning it now. Um, it doesn't have to be huge. It doesn't have to be complicated. The point of Yuri's Night is to have fun. So I, I encourage everybody to go out and have fun and consider their, their place in the cosmos as part of this crew of Spaceship Earth uh, that we have. Uh, all, all billions and billions of us floating through the cosmos together. And one thing I will endorse while while we're talking on that is if you can go and find it it'll be available on youtube we can put a link on the on the show notes if you like there's a a, a movie out there called first orbit and i encourage everyone who's into space to to watch this movie because it tells you exactly what yuri gagarin went through um with the help of the the people on the ISS, they reconstructed his movements through space on his first orbit. And uh, 
It is a, a fantastic piece of film. It is, and it's even if it's just playing in the background. I know I've been to several events where we just had it up on on monitors at a bar or, or someplace else, playing in the background, and it's fascinating to to talk to people about. You know, this is the view that Yuri Gagarin would have had. You know, or a view very similar of this of these same parts of the Earth going around the planet, uh, and just to consider being the first person to ever see planet Earth as a planet. Not as the ground that we're on, but uh, but as as a planet that's out in space and being able to see how thin that atmosphere really is, mm-hmm. and how there are no borders between nations uh, that are that are real, uh, but merely the ones that we put there or that we imagine, and, and how transformative that must have been. On the website Yuri's Night, we always have one of his quotes uh, about circling the planet. Uh, he uh, he was amazed at the beauty uh, of Earth and that we need to protect it and not fight over it. Um, circling the Earth in my orbital spaceship, I marveled at the beauty of our planet. People of the world, let us safeguard and enhance this beauty, not destroy it. Yeah. And to have those words coming from a, a Soviet-era cosmonaut is just, uh, it gives me chill bumps every time I read it. So uh, and, and, uh, and this, this was back in 1961, people. I mean... We haven't learned. <laughs> but we can, you know, and, and I think when we stop making dividing lines between art and science and we, we, you know, stop putting people into categories and realize that the rock and roll guy with the mohawk hair has just as much business and mission control as, as you or I. Uh, and the, uh, the origami master has a place in space telescopes <laughs> and um, music and art have a, have a very big role to play in our species moving out into the cosmos. Um, and so that's why I'm, I'm really excited to have podcasts like yours that are uh, um, pushing out the, the information to people on a, on a regular basis, not just about Yuri's Night, but about science in general and getting excited about the world that we live in. So thank you, thank you, thank you for making that happen. So an absolute pleasure. And as I say, it's it's great to have as many people on the show as possible because we always say that your input is our output. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> All right. Well, as we, we say at Yuri's Night, rock the planet uh, and make an impact. Definitely. And as the, a brave man once said uh, in, on the 12th of April, 1961, Piacoli. Let's go. Be sure to visit tgpnominal.weebly.com for the show notes for this or any other episode. Just look for the relevant tab on the menu. Let us know what you think of the show. Send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com. Because your input is our output. Or you can use the social media icons at the top of the page that include Twitter and Facebook. If you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts, you can do so via iTunes, the RSS feed, and also Stitcher and TuneIn On Demand Radio. Don't forget to rate and review us. You can find links on all our podcast pages. If you like what we're doing here, then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the donate button on any of the podcast pages. And don't forget to spread the word about us. Station, this is Houston ACR. Thank you. That concludes the event.